Good morning. Merry Christmas. Uh, My name is Tom. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is my great pleasure and joy to get to open up God's Word for you on this, my favorite day of the year, on Christmas Eve. I I love Christmas. I love Christmas, and uh, perhaps the thing I love most of all about Christmas, it's hard to pick, but I love Christmas carols. Uh, I don't know if you've ever really stopped and listened to some of the things that get played on the radio this year, but they have incredible, beautiful theology. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail incarnate deity. There is amazing gospel truth in so many of the songs that we sing this time of year. But some of the songs don't actually have the greatest theology. Uh, And some of those are, are very, very popular ones. One of them is uh, a very, very popular song. You've probably heard it this Christmas season. It's called Mary Did You Know. Uh, it's very beautiful musically. A lot of the lyrics are great. It's, it's asking all these deep questions about what did Mary know? What it was going through Mary's mind as she held Jesus in her arms in, in the stable in Bethlehem that, that first Christmas night. And, and some of them are innocent enough. The song starts off, Mary, did you know that your baby boy will give sight to a blind man? Mary, did you know that your baby boy will calm a storm with his hand? It's, it's very dramatic. It's these, these great sweeping terms. And, and for all we know, Mary didn't know these very, very specific things. She didn't know the entire list of miracles that Jesus was going to do. So some of these questions are, are innocent enough. But the problems come in that very last verse. It says, Mary, did you know that your baby boy is Lord of all creation? Mary, did you know that your baby boy will one day rule the nations? Did you know that your baby boy is heaven's perfect lamb, that the sleeping child you're holding is the great I am? Beautiful and haunting, but incorrect. Because we do know the answer to this question. We know from the pages of Holy Scripture that Mary knew the answer to all of these questions. She she knew the answer was yes, but she knew all of these things and more. And as we turn this morning to Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38, we're going to learn just what Mary knew prior to the birth of Christ. And if you've been with us over the past several weeks, we've been looking at the Old Testament, all the ways in which the, uh, that God prepared his people for the coming of Christ, the way that he just amped up the anticipation more and more and more. And, and this morning, we're going to see God take that longing and that anticipation and turn it up to 11, because he's going to pull back the curtain just a little bit more about who this Messiah is going to be. He's going to bring us right to the edge of the glorious fulfillment of everything that we have been reading about this Advent. And Luke, the author of this book, is going to challenge us and invite us to rightly grasp and respond to the identity of this coming Christ. So look with me, if you would, at Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. 
And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is God's word. Let us pray. Dear Father, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of an unclean people, Lord. Would you, would you touch me this morning, Father, so that we could see Christ in this passage? Would you touch each and every one of us, Lord? Would you clear away the hardness and the deadness in our hearts, Jesus, and show us yourself? so that we can be ready tomorrow and, and next week and next month and next year to worship and celebrate your coming to this world, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. So before we get into the text, just a couple of quick words about Luke, because we are kind of parachuting into this book. We usually teach sequentially verse by verse through books, and we're not, we're not doing that today. Uh, Luke was written by a physician who was a a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. He's a, he's a doctor. He's got scientific credentials uh, in the first century term. And it's important to note that Luke is not the first gospel that was written. Uh, the order we have in the Bible is Matthew, Mark, Luke. It was probably Mark, Matthew, and then Luke, and then John later on. So you might be wondering, if two gospels potentially have already been written, why did Luke bother to write a gospel? Well, he tells us in verses 1 through 4 of this book, he dedicates this book to a man named Theophilus, and he tells us his purpose in composing this account of Jesus' life. He says, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me..." that is good to Luke, having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So Luke's goal is to write an orderly account. He has researched these things. He has done an investigation. He is like a, a first century journalist with an orderly scientific mind. And he doesn't write just to entertain or, or even just to inform. He wants Theophilus, and he wants us to have certainty concerning the things that we have been taught. If we do not believe, Luke wants us to come to belief about who Christ is. And if we do believe, he wants us to be strengthened in our faith. So that's Luke's overarching purpose. And that's his purpose in our passage today as well. He wants us to rightly grasp and respond to the identity of the coming Christ. And he accomplishes this in our passage by focusing our attention on an ordinary woman, an extraordinary child, and an almighty God. 
We learn several things about Mary in this short passage. First of all, that she was from Nazareth. And, and we can get so familiar with this story that we're like, okay, Nazareth, I know all about that. Nazareth is tiny. Nazareth in this day was probably about 400 people. My graduating class in high school was bigger than that. This is a fly-speck town. Uh, we learn that Mary is a virgin and that she is betrothed. So from these things, we know she's probably a teenager. She's probably not a whole lot older than Jordan, who's sitting right there. She is a young, Ill, probably illiterate peasant. Now, the word virgin there in Greek can refer either to someone who is unmarried uh, but it can also refer to somebody who has not had sexual relations with a man. And as Mary's going to make clear in verse 34, that's, that's what she's, she's talking about. She has not had that yet. Uh, the word betrothal there is kind of like engagement, but it's actually a lot stronger. We learn from the book of Matthew that in those days, if you were betrothed, it actually required a certificate of divorce to break. So you're as good as married, but you're not living yet with the person you're married to. And Luke tells us that she or possibly Joseph here, is, is from the house of David. It's not quite clear in the text whether this, this possessive term refers to her or to Joseph that she is engaged to. Uh, we know from Joseph's genealogy in Matthew 1 that he is absolutely descended from David. And then if you look over in Luke 3, which is sometimes taken to be Mary's genealogy, it seems to have her descended from David as well. Uh, but if you read elsewhere in chapter 1, she is called a relative of Elizabeth, who we know is from the priestly family, the, the tribe of Levi and the house of Aaron. Um, so it's possible, and it's most likely, that her family was somehow mixed. She's got a, a Davidic line from Judah, and she also has an, a, a priestly line from Aaron and Levi as well. Her name is Mary. Greek is Miriam. It's the, the Greek version of Miriam, which was the name of Moses' sister. Um, and this is a very, very common name in the New Testament. Mary actually does not get as much screen time in Luke as some other Marys. There's Mary Magdalene, most famously, and, and Mary kind of gets pushed off to the side by all these other Marys that are going on in the New Testament. The bottom line is, she's ordinary. She is from a town smaller than most elementary schools in Louisville. She's probably illiterate. She's betrothed to a tradesman. And whether she is descended from David and the kings or Aaron and the priests, she is not a king or a queen. She is not a member of the religious elite. She's a lot like you and me. And this is the one to whom God sends an angel. But not just any angel. The name Gabriel there in the text is incredibly significant. If you read in the Old Testament, Gabriel shows up in one of Daniel's visions like Daniel in the lion's den, that Daniel. There's a lot of crazy stuff that happens in that book. And Gabriel shows up there in chapter 8, verse 16, and he is presenting some of this material to David. And Gabriel has already showed up here in the book of Luke. If you read earlier in this chapter, he shows up to Zechariah in the temple. Zechariah is a priest, and he's burning incense before God, and he shows up in the temple to Zechariah and says, your wife is going to conceive and have a child who becomes John the baptizer. So to this ordinary Jewish teenage girl, God sends a very significant and prominent divine messenger. And this is his message. Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. 
Now, the Roman Catholic Vulgate translates this as Hail Mary, full of grace. That, that's where that phrase comes from. It comes from right here. And it's frankly the source of a lot of really, really bad theology about Mary. You see, within Roman Catholicism, Mary is seen as co-redemptress. She's seen as co-savior along with Jesus, having in herself grace that she can give to people who call upon her. But that is not what this verse is put here to say. It's much better translated in the ESV that she is favored by God and that God is with her. She is not a dispenser of grace, but she is the recipient of grace. She has received grace herself. And to have this told to her by an angel is an amazing statement. As you might expect, this rural, illiterate teenage peasant doesn't quite know what to make of this. It says that she is troubled, and I think here we're, we're tempted to dump on Mary, to, to be a little bit mean and critical of Mary. And I think it's because, you know, most of us grew up as good sons and daughters of the Protestant Reformation, and, and we know that the Catholics have this crazy view about Mary, and we want to reject that. So I think our tendency is to go all the way the other way and find everything about Mary that we can critique and pick out, in, instead of seeing her as a fellow saint, a fellow believer in Christ Jesus. Uh, I think this is the response that just about anybody would have to an angel. If we read uh, earlier in this, in this book, in this chapter, in verses 11 through 13, Zechariah, the learned elite priest of Israel, the spiritual leader in Israel, has the exact same response that Mary does. In verse 11 says, And there appeared to him, that is to Zechariah, an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. And fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. So, so Zechariah, the, the learned, educated priest who has read about Gabriel, he has read the book of Daniel, he probably had the book of Daniel memorized, has the exact same response to Gabriel showing up that Mary does. He is troubled. And I think the reason why is that angels in the Bible are serious business. If you read that word angel and what comes into your mind is a fat baby with wings, you've missed the point. Angels, every time they show up in the Bible, the first thing they have to do is say, don't be afraid. Because angels are serious business. God sends them to send great, important messages. He also sends them sometimes to wipe out entire armies. These are serious big deal beings. And so I think it's better for us to, to see Mary's response here as probably the way that we would respond and, and give her a break and see her as, as someone who's a human being just like the rest of us. So Gabriel, just with Zechariah, he has to tell Mary, don't be afraid, stop being afraid. And he tells her that she has found favor with God. It's kind of a parallel statement to before. He's not saying, Mary, you are greater than any other human being in the world. Mary, you are co-redemptor with the son that you're going to have, or you've earned favor. You don't need saving grace. But she has received saving grace. And more than that, that God is going to do something incredible in her life. This word favored is an incredibly high honor. If you read back to the Old Testament, the people in the Old Testament who are said to have found favor with God include Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David. 
So, so some pretty heavy hitters, some pretty big deal types. So she is being told not that she doesn't need saving grace, but that she has received saving grace and that God is going to do something in her life comparable to what he did in the life of Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David. So what does all this have to do with the identity of Jesus? Just this, that he is a God willing and able to use ordinary people to do extraordinary things and accomplish his plan. Ask yourself this morning, are you afraid to be ordinary? I think this is a very real fear in our time. We don't mind being weird. We don't mind being odd or unique. But the thought that we would be commonplace, ordinary, average, is terrifying. I think this explains our love for superhero movies. So many of the best superhero movies start out with somebody who is ordinary, living a normal life, and then something happens that transforms them into someone who is extraordinary. I remember when I was a kid, I wanted this to be me so badly. I was convinced that I was going to turn out to be like Superman. I was going to turn out to be from another planet, and I was going to one day be able to fly through prolonged exposure to the Earth's sun. Very, very nerdy. Or I was going to get bitten by a radioactive spider and be able to climb walls like Spider-Man. We can't stand the thought that we might just be ordinary. Did you know that 94% of college professors think they are above-average teachers? Just let that sink in for a second. Did you know that 70% of high school students think they are above average leaders? Most of us are ordinary. Most of us are common. Most of us are not going to be in history books. Let me ask you this. Can you remember the names of your great-grandparents? Most of us are ordinary. Most of us are not going to be remembered. But Jesus can use ordinary people in extraordinary ways. So ask yourself this morning, are you willing to be used by Jesus in ways that seem ordinary? Being afraid of being ordinary can put a limit on what we allow God to do in our lives. It can cause us to say no when God has something that seems ordinary, common, dirty. We might be willing to preach a sermon, plan an outreach, lead a Bible study, But then when God says, I want you to go and work that job that you don't love, or I want you to go and parent your kids when they drive you crazy, that can seem ordinary. But God can do extraordinary things through the things that seem ordinary, just as he does in Mary's life. So the next time God has something that seems ordinary, low, common, dirty, even easy, are you going to say yes to that? Don't underestimate what God can do in your ordinary circumstances. Don't have low expectations of what God can do with ordinary people. Don't say no when he has a seemingly ordinary task for you to do. Because Mary was ordinary. But Jesus can use ordinary people to do amazing things. And just how amazing becomes clear as Luke in this account turns our attention from this ordinary mother to an extraordinary child. Picking up there in verse 31, Gabriel has told Mary that she has found favor with God, and now he's going to tell her what the result of that favor is going to be. 
Just as Abraham found favor with God and received a covenant, just as Moses found favor with God and mediated a covenant, just as David found favor with God and received a covenant, Mary has found favor with God. And she's going to receive the promise of a covenant, of a special agreement with God. She is told that she will conceive in her womb and bear a son whom she will call Jesus. Now, almost nobody today is going to name their son Jesus for obvious reasons. They don't want to to put that kind of pressure on a kid. Uh, But again, in those days, this is a common name. In, in the Hebrew, it is Yeshua or Joshua. It means the Lord saves. And if you've ever been to Sunday school, you know about Joshua and the battle of Jericho. He, he's the most famous Joshua up to this point, but there are Joshua's all over the Old Testament. This is not some kind of super unique, obviously special name. But just because it is an ordinary name does not mean it is without significance, You see, names in the Bible always mean something. And any time we are given a christening ceremony, a ceremony where a child is given a name, especially before birth, it is a big deal. It says something about the circumstances of that child's birth, but also what that child is going to be when he grows up. In the book of Genesis, God tells the barren and elderly Abraham and Sarah, you're going to have a baby. And they're in their 90s. So Sarah laughs. She's like, this is ridiculous. This is funny. But, but God keeps his promise, and they have a baby, and then they name their son Isaac, which means laughter. In the book of 1 Samuel, Hannah, who is also barren, is miraculously enabled to conceive. And she has her son, and she names him Samuel, which means I have received him from the Lord. And earlier, we, we read in Luke 1, when Gabriel tells Zechariah that his barren wife, Elizabeth, is going to conceive, when he is finally born, they give him the name John, transliterated from the Hebrew Yohanan, meaning God's gracious gift. So names mean something. Jesus, Yeshua, means the Lord saves In Matthew 121, it's even more pointed than this. The angel tells Joseph, she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And that this child can live up to his name is made clear in verses 22 through 23. Gabriel says, he will be great, the son of the most high. This is greatness in terms of kind, not just in terms of degree. This child is not just going to be great because he's going to have more of some quality or characteristic or property than somebody else. He is going to be something and someone altogether different from anybody else in the world. He is going to be the son of God. He's going to be equal to God. And don't let the future tense there confuse you when it says he will be called. It's not saying that someone is going to come into existence, that that right now this child does not exist in any sense, but he is going to come into existence. That's the way it is with normal babies. You know, we we have that phrase, you were just a, a twinkle in your dad's eye, basically meaning there was a time when you were not. But that is not what is being said here about Jesus. And we know this from reading the rest of the New Testament. 
Uh, most clearly, it says in John 8, 58, Jesus is being, he's arguing with the religious leaders, and, and he makes this statement about having known Abraham, who was way, way, way before his time, and they're like, how can you know Abraham? And he says, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. So this is not teaching that, that Jesus is going to come into existence, rather that he is going to be revealed and recognized as the Son of God. Gabriel goes on, this child, this Jesus has promised to receive the throne of David and to reign over the house of Israel forever. Now it's interesting because here David is referred to as Jesus' father. Not, not literal father, of course. David is long dead. But he's referred to as his ancestor. But even so, this ought to catch our attention. How can Jesus be descended from David, from a human being, and, and also be the son of God? That's a good question. This is one of many passages from which we get the doctrine of the incarnation, the doctrine that teaches that the eternal second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, who had always existed and will always exist, became truly human in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, the, the child that Gabriel was describing. The doctrine of the incarnation teaches that Jesus is fully 100% man and fully 100% God. But that doesn't seem right. Like, how can you take 100% and 100% and put them in one thing? It seems like you would have 200%. You'd have too much. How can he be fully God and fully man at the same time? Well, in a sense, this is right. If we say that Jesus is fully man and mean that he is merely a man, you're right. He can't be both. Because merely a man would mean he is not also God. But there is more to Jesus than just a man. There, we, we human beings, we, we are merely human. I am just a man. I am not also something else. But that does not keep Jesus from being fully man and, and something else. We just can't say that he is merely a man. Uh, let, me, let me try to explain it this way. Tomorrow morning, if I give our oldest daughter, Naomi, uh, a, a box wrapped in wrapping paper, and inside is a stuffed bear, and I give that to her, and the only thing in that box is a stuffed bear. It is correct to say that her Christmas present is only a stuffed bear. It's 100% fully a stuffed bear. That's all it is. But if that box also contains a storybook, then it is true to say, Naomi, your Christmas present is a stuffed bear. But it is also a storybook. Her present is 100% a real, genuine, authentic stuffed bear, but her present is also 100% a real, genuine, authentic storybook. And I'd only be in trouble if I said, your present is only one thing or the other. And if you'd like more help with that, there's a very technical, very dense, uh, complicated book by a guy named Tom Morris called The Logic of God Incarnate. And if you want to meet and read that together, I would love to do that. It's an awesome book. <laughs> Mary's child, Jesus, is going to have a human nature, a human soul, a human body, just like you and I have. But he will also have a divine nature, and all of this is going to be in one person, fully God and fully man. 
Jesus is also going to be a king. He is going to sit on David's throne and reign forever and ever. And if you've been with us this Advent, we have gone through all these promises in the Old Testament, and there's one in particular that keeps coming up over and over and over again in Isaiah, and it's this promise. It's the promise that was made to David way back in 2 Samuel that he would have an heir, that he would never lack a man to sit on the throne, that he would have a perpetual, eternal dynasty a line stretching on forever, that he would always have a man to sit on the throne. And if you've been with us in Advent, you know that 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 got messed up, that they went into exile. Uh, Israel went to Assyria, Judah went to Babylon, and and they eventually get the land back. They eventually come back about 70 years later, and and they're restored, but they never get the kingship back. And Gabriel was saying, that's all about to change. The promise to David is going to be fulfilled. God is going to restore David's tent. A branch is going to spring from David's roots, and the king is going to come to his throne. That day is here. The king is going to finally return. It is going to be Mary's child. He is going to be the king. He is going to sit on the throne, and no exile or war or turmoil or sin is going to break at this time. It is going to be fulfilled. Jesus will reign forever as the king over Israel. And Mary, as you might imagine, is somewhat taken aback by all of this. And again, this is a place where we want to dump on Mary. She asks, how can this be since I am a virgin? And we want to criticize her. We we want to call this a lack of faith. But as I was reading John Calvin's commentary on this, he, he points out all the things that Mary doesn't ask. He doesn't ask, how do you know, Gabriel? How how, how do you know that this is going to happen? She doesn't ask if this is some kind of a trick. She doesn't say, are are you really my cousin Mordecai wearing some fake wings? She doesn't ask how God could become a man. She doesn't ask how the promise could be finally coming true. She doesn't ask, God, why did this take so long? God, why did you allow the exile God, why have you given us so many bad kings while we were waiting for this? God, why are the Romans occupying our country right now? These are the things I would want to ask. Mary doesn't ask that. She asks a simple question. How will this be since I'm a virgin? And if you read earlier where Zechariah asked the priest a similar question, he, he is told that his barren wife, his old wife, but his, his wife nonetheless, is going to conceive and have a child. And he says, how is this going to happen? And Gabriel rebukes him. Gabriel says, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and you are not going to be able to speak until this child is born. And, and he can't. The very first words out of John's mouth are after, I'm sorry, after, out of Zechariah's mouth, are after John is born, he says, his name is John. He gets rebuked, he gets silenced, he gets, he gets uh, put back in his place. But that doesn't happen here with Mary. And, and for that reason, I, I don't think there's so much unbelief here in Mary's response as there is wonder. She's not cynically saying, oh, Really? I happen to be a virgin. How am I going to have a baby? She's not asking like that. She is saying in breathless wonder, how will this be? Because I am a virgin. 
Oh, may we respond to the promises of God in wonder and in faith rather than in cynicism and unbelief. Gabriel is all too happy to answer this awe-filled question. He says that her child will be miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit. Now, we're given not a whole lot of detail here. The word overshadowing is the language of, of clouds. It's kind of mysterious language referring to things being hidden. If, if you read back in Genesis 1, it says that the Spirit of God is hovering or overshadowing the waters as God is creating all things. So it, it, it's not specific. It's not detailed. The Spirit is going to move in some kind of mysterious way to provide to Mary's body the missing biological elements that are needed to generate a fully, truly human baby in her body. We're not told what the details are. We're not told exactly when this happened or how this happened, but we are told the results. This child is going to be holy. He's going to be the son of God. Now, a disclaimer here. He is not saying he's going to be holy because he was, was, uh, was conceived without normal sexual intercourse. He's not dissing that. He's not calling it dirty. He's not calling it filthy. But what he is saying is that this mode of generation is necessary for Jesus to be called holy and the son of God. Now, a few years ago, there was a very popular Bible teacher, I won't say who, uh, but he made a lot of waves by saying, you know, we can kind of just dispense with the virgin birth. It, it, it may have just been a little bit of mythologizing done by the apostles, and if we get rid of it, we're not really missing anything. But Luke and Gabriel and Mary, and most importantly, God, do not hold that opinion. Because Jesus was miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit, and that means he is holy. He is without sin. He is fully a man, but he lacks the transmission of the original guilt and the sinful nature that you and I all inherited from Adam, our first parents. And it means that Jesus is able to serve as a perfect, spotless, sinless, substitutionary sacrifice for sin in our place. And because Jesus was miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit, he is thus shown to be the Son of God. He was conceived in a way that is different from every other human being in the world because he is going to be different from every other human being in the world. He is the Son of God. And that will mean that his life is a worthy sacrifice for sins. And it means that Emmanuel, the promise from Isaiah 7, is finally coming true. It is finally going to be fulfilled in this child. According to Gabriel, this is how Jesus had to be born, to be called holy and the Son of God. And so you and I are not free to dispense with this doctrine. We cannot throw out the baby with the bathwater because we need this baby. He is Jesus. He is great. He is the son of the most high. He is David's root and branch. He will sit on David's throne and reign over Israel forever and ever. He is holy. He is the son of God. And if that is who Mary's child is, we need to ask, do we know this Jesus you see, we can, we can think we know somebody and, and, and be really, really sure of it. Think we have them all figured out. 
but we can nevertheless overlook them and misunderstand them at the same time. I, I remember uh, about, about 10 years ago, um, I had graduated from Clemson, and I was living with my folks in Tennessee at the time, and this is going to sound really, really weird, but just go with me. I, I woke up one morning from a dream, and, and the dream was, was very, very significant, and it's had a huge impact on my life. Uh, to set some context, I had been going back and forth, back to Clemson where I went to school, and, 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 and getting to know this young lady again, getting reacquainted with her, that we had been great friends for four years. I, I thought I knew her really, really well. We were good friends, and, and that was it. That was all there was to it. But I distinctly remember in this dream, we were back at Clemson, we were getting into a car together, and she gave me this look. It wasn't anything inappropriate, it wasn't anything scandalous, it, nothing like that. But, but it was a look that said, you are important to me, you, you matter to me. It, it was a look that I had never gotten from this person in my life, it was a look I had never gotten from anybody in my entire life. And, and I woke up from this dream on April Fool's Day, I, I kid you not, <laughs> And I suddenly realized that I had, I thought I knew who Esther Amarendran was. But I had totally overlooked and missed her. And I, I suddenly realized that, no, this person is, there, there's a lot more to this person than I think she is. She, she means a lot more to me than I think she is. And that was, that was the beginning of, of God opening my eyes to, to who she was. And, and, and you know the rest of the story. <laughs> the point is, we can, we can think we know somebody. We can think we know everything about somebody and yet the whole time be overlooking them and missing who they really are. And if we are not careful, we can do the exact same thing with Jesus. We can get comfortable and complacent. We can think we know all about who Jesus is and completely miss him in the process. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you have kind of a billboard view of Jesus, Maybe someone once gave you a gospel track, or, or you saw the Passion of the Christ way back in the day, or, or you've heard a carol or two, or, or passed by a nativity scene, and you think that Jesus is okay for somebody out there somewhere. Somebody out there can make a big deal out of Jesus, but that does not demand more than a passing glance from me. Or maybe you're here, and Jesus is old hat for you. You're in the church every time the doors are open. You own a Bible. You've read the Bible, you've read other Christian books, you've listened to sermons. This might not be the first sermon you've listened to today. This might not be the first sermon you've listened to this week. You've heard the gospel, you've shared the gospel, you've preached a gospel sermon in a church setting. You can rattle off theological terms and Greek verbs. You know Jesus. You would say Jesus is important, the most important thing, the only thing that he's familiar to you. He's not capable of surprising you this morning. And wherever you are this morning, I urge you to take a fresh look at Jesus as he is revealed in God's word and make sure that your Jesus lines up with this one. If you're comfortable keeping Jesus at a distance with that billboard view of Jesus, ask yourself, can you really pass right by the one that God claims is fully God and fully man, who is without sin, holy and perfect in every way. Can you not bat an eye at that? And if church and Jesus and the gospel are old hat to you, ask yourself, are you reacting in awe and wonder the way Mary did? 
When I just read now that Jesus is great, the Son of God, the one in whom all of God's promises for thousands of years comes true, did any part of you melt into awe and ask, how can this be? Ask yourself, as you're wrapping presents tonight and opening them tomorrow morning, are you seeing Jesus the way the Bible presents him? Are you taking him for granted? Are you missing him? Thinking you know him, but missing him along the way. Gabriel's explanation of the identity of this extraordinary child draws our attention inevitably to the one who can bring all this to pass. An almighty God. Look with me at verse 36. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. Now, a lot of the times in the Bible, they, they love to do this thing called going from the, the lesser to the greater, right? If you've read the parables of Jesus, you, you see that he does this. He, he'll do, say a thing like, uh, you, if you go to your father and ask, you for, and ask him for a loaf of bread, is he going to give you a stone? If you ask him for a piece of fruit, is he going to give you a scorpion? Just as earthly fathers can give good gifts so much more, will your heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask? So he, he takes the example of the lesser, and he goes from the lesser to the greater. It's very, very common in the Bible. But here, Gabriel does the opposite of that. He goes from the greater, from the supernatural, virginal conception of Mary to the lesser conception of barren Elizabeth. Now, God enabling to a barren woman to conceive is a huge deal. But as wonderful as that is, it is still more wonderful for a virgin to conceive. And God in his grace gives Mary the lesser example of Elizabeth's conception so that she will have faith to believe in the greater miracle of her own conception. John Calvin calls this a, con a condescension on God's part. He writes, Mary ought to have placed such a reliance on the bare word of God as to require no support to her faith from any other quarter. She should have needed nothing else. But to prevent further hesitation, the Lord condescends to strengthen his promise by this new aid. With equal indulgence does he cheer and support us every day. Nay, with greater indulgence because our faith is weaker. That we may not doubt his truth. Testimonies to confirm it are brought by him from every direction. God wants his people to believe his promises. We would have no faith at all apart from the Holy Spirit. But God also gives us the testimony of other believers, and he gives us apologetics and good philosophy and good science so that can help strengthen our faith that he has already given to us. We are all prone to struggle and doubt in our walk with Christ, but he gives us in his mercy resources so that we do not have to stay there. And the promise that God commands Mary to believe is found there in verse 37, that nothing will be impossible with God. Now, this is both a general principle about who God is in general, but it's also a kind of 
meta-promise, if you will, a promise about the promises of God. It's a general principle because God is able to do everything that he desires to do. Nothing that God could ever want to do would be impossible for him to do. He is fully 100% capable of bringing about his perfect, righteous, and pleasing will. Now, now, as an aside, I, I want you to know that this is not the same as saying that God can do anything. God cannot sin, for example. James 1.13 says that God cannot be tempted by evil. God could not stop being God. And if I may take an even further aside, God cannot make a rock so big that he can't lift it. All right? It, it drives me crazy when Christians say that God can God can't make a rock so big that he can't lift it, but God can't fail to do it either because it's nonsense. It is what philosophers call a pseudo-task. It's like saying, God, can you please make a square circle for me? It's ridiculous. We wouldn't even know what that would look like. It's absurd. So God can't do it, but God can't fail to do it either, and so it does not count against God being able to do whatever he wants to do. So that's my, that's my aside there. As a general principle, God can do whatever God desires to do. He is fully able to bring about glory for himself and good for his people. And if you are in Christ Jesus this morning, that includes you. God can do whatever he wants to do to bring good to you this morning. But this is also a promise about God's promises. God is able to do whatever he has promised to do. God can cash whatever check God has written. If God has promised to do something, then in his perfect, unbreakable truthfulness and absolute integrity, he has committed his phenomenal cosmic power to bring about exactly what he has said that he will do. God has promised to Zechariah and Elizabeth that they, though barren, will conceive and have a baby, and that has come to pass. And now God has promised Mary, in spite of her virginity, she will conceive and she will bear a son, and he will be everything that Gabriel has said that he will be. Great, the son of the Most High, holy, David's heir, the son of God. For nothing that God has promised to do will be impossible for him. And the character of this almighty God is further reflected by Mary's own response to this word in verse 38. Mary says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Mary has asked her question, and she has had it answered. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon her, it's going to overshadow her, and she's going to have this child because nothing will be impossible with God. There, there may be a hint of a rebuke there, but it's a gentle one. And if so, Mary takes it. Gabriel has given her the answer, and she submits. The word servant there is, is doule, which is the feminine of doulos, which is used throughout the New Testament, usually translated as servant or even slave. And if you read down in this chapter to the glorious Magnificat, the song that Mary sings a few verses down, she again calls herself the servant of the Lord. Mary is submitting to God. Whatever the Lord says is going to happen, however the Lord says it is going to happen, she accepts it. She submits to it. She accepts the will of the Lord. 
And this is further reflected in her petition. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary is the object in that sentence. Mary is passive. God is going to keep his promises. That is going to happen to her. She is going to receive the action there. Gabriel delivers God's promise. He's given as much detail as he's going to do. Mary submits to it, and the angel goes. Mary faced a life of uncertainty. Mary didn't know how Joseph was going to react. She didn't know how the people of Nazareth were going to react, if they were going to kind of look at her sideways and think, okay, she just got married then, but she's showing now, oh my goodness. And that was going to stick with her the rest of her life. People were always going to be wondering, who is this child's parent really? She has this story about a, about a virginal conception, but who, what's the real story here? She faced all of that. And her response was to say, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to God's word. Mary's response reflects the character of Mary's God, that he is Lord and sovereign. Gabriel did not come and ask Mary's permission for God to do this. No, God in his absolute and unquestioned sovereignty who made this plan before the creation of the world has sent an angel to tell her how he is going to bring it to pass. Before creation, in the depths of eternity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit committed themselves to a covenant of redemption, wherein God the Son would offer his life for the sins of the world, God the Father would accept the sacrifice, and God the Holy Spirit would work in creation to bring all this to pass. And now God is working out his sovereign plan. God the Father has sent an angel to reveal that God the Son is going to be born of a virgin through the power of God the Holy Spirit. And Mary rightly submits to the plan of sovereign God. This is Almighty God. He makes the barren conceive. Nothing is impossible for him. He is Lord and he is sovereign. And because this is who God is, this guarantees that Jesus is who this text says he is. Every objection we can raise against the virgin birth, against Jesus being fully God and fully man, against him being sinless, all run up against the impenetrable brick wall of God's almighty power. Nothing is too hard for God. He can make a virgin conceive. The Son of God is able to become a man. He is able to live a sinless life. He is able to offer his life for our sins, and he is able to rise again from the dead. And if Jesus is who this passage says he is, that demands a response from us. If you're not a Christian, first of all, thank you for being here this morning. Thank you for worshiping with us this morning. But this text demands a response from you. This is the biblical picture of Jesus. This is the one whose birth we are about to celebrate. And you can reject him. You can reject all of this as a fairy tale, Or you can fall down on your knees and ask him to save you. But what you cannot do is call him a nice moral teacher or one option among many. He has not left that option for us. And I would urge you this morning to receive him on his terms. 
Believe that he is the promised Savior in this passage. And if you believe and trust and put your faith in him, you will be saved. Let me ask the rest of us, are we responding like Mary this morning? Are we trusting in the sovereignty of God as she did? Are we saying, behold, the servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. As much as I look forward to Christmas every year, I I am painfully aware this is a hard time for a lot of people. You might be here this morning and you are, you're sad because someone that you love has died. Maybe it was recently or maybe you just think about it more because this is this time of year and everybody is acting so happy. Maybe you are worried about something that's on the horizon. Maybe you are worried your job won't be there for you on Tuesday. Maybe you're worried about a relationship that is about to come apart. Maybe you're sick. Maybe someone you love is sick. Maybe you're just stressed out about making Christmas come together for your family tonight and tomorrow. I want to gently but firmly tell you this morning that you are not smarter than God. And you are not more kind and good than God is. You would not do a better job running your life and you would not do a better job running the universe than God would. God is doing in your life exactly what you would choose for him to do if you knew what he knew and you had the heart that he has. And that does not mean that everything is going to work out like on a TV Christmas special. Mary is going to live to see her child falsely accused and die on a Roman cross. But it does mean that the one who is perfect in wisdom and power and goodness is running the universe and he is running your life. And I urge you the next time the unexpected, the frustrating, and the frightening happen, be ready. Arm yourself with this gospel truth. Be ready to respond with faith like Mary's in the sovereignty and goodness of Almighty God. Be prepared to say with Mary, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to God's word. Martin Luther pointed out that there are three miracles in this passage. That God would become a man, that Mary would remain a virgin, and that Mary would have the faith to believe. And he writes that the last is not the least of the three. The virgin birth is a mere trifle for God. That God should become a man is a greater miracle, but most amazing of all is that this maiden should credit the announcement that she, rather than some other virgin, had been chosen to be the mother of God. She held fast to the word of the angel because she had become a new creature. Even so, we must be transformed and renewed in heart from day to day, otherwise Christ is born in vain. May this almighty God, this sovereign Lord Jesus, give us faith like Mary to believe that Jesus is who he claims to be and to trust him in all of the ebbs and flows of life and declare with Mary, to declare with Mary that we are the servants of the Lord. Let it be to us according to his word. Mary did know. Mary knew. And Mary believed. And with this announcement, God has set the board and put the pieces into motion. After thousands of years of waiting, the time has finally come for the arrival of the Messiah, for the coming of the long-expected Jesus.
All that is left is for him to finally come and finally be born. And if you'll come back with us tonight, we'll get to finally look and see and marvel at that together. Let us pray. Oh, Father God, thank you, Lord, so much that you kept your promises. Thank you for telling us in advance what you were going to do and then doing it to show that you are absolutely true and faithful. Thank you, Jesus, that whatever we have brought in with us this morning, whatever we face as we go out those doors, we know that you are with us, that you, Jesus, did exactly what you said you would do, and we can trust you. Give us faith like Mary to believe that this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.